This is an ABC podcast. Good morning, this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia and it comes to you from the lands of the Bunurong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. Hopefully you had a great weekend. I'm Aggie Dubol, your host here on a Monday morning. Today on the show, protests flare up in New Caledonia. We take a deeper look into the impacts of security arrangements that have on women in the Solomon Islands. And did you know that the Pacific Islands have the world's lowest rates of access to safe or basic drinking water and sanitation. More on these stories shortly. Again, I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. Now firstly, pro-independence protesters recently clashed with police in downtown Noumea in opposition to French government planned changes to New Caledonia's electoral role. The protests organised by Union Caledonian, or UC, have been reluctant to take part in talks, saying this could be destabilising New Caledonia's political balances. So to talk more on this matter, we're joined by former Australian Council General in Noumea, Denise Fisher. With that I say bonjour and ça Denise. Ah oui, ça va bien. Merci, Agnes. How are you? I am good. Thank you very much. Uh, appreciate your time this morning. Uh, yeah, the protests in uh, New Caledonia. I mean, are you aware of the amendments, firstly, that are being planned? And I'm just wondering, why is it so sensitive to, to these pro-independence groups? Well, because uh, two reasons. Firstly, because it's it's around a subject which was vitally important to them when they negotiated the Matignon and Namir Accords, which have just coming to their end at the moment after 30 years. It's the key to their sense of security in New Caledonia and a political future. That is, that there should only be allowed long-standing residents of New Caledonia to vote in local elections. Uh, That it shouldn't include, for example, people who are posted from France for a couple of years or people who just arrive from other parts of France and may not have long-standing connection with New Caledonia. But secondly, it's the way in which France has threatened to impose a unilateral solution if they cannot agree to talk to other parties and political um, uh, groups in New Caledonia about the future of New Caledonia. This is because, as you know, we're at a bit of an impasse in New Caledonia two years after the final processes of the Nomir Accord took place, those three votes on independence, the last one which was really had had the political rug pulled underneath for Ethan because there was a big Kanak independence uh, boycott of the third vote. For two years, certain elements, including that party, the oldest political party in New Caledonia, the Union Caledonienne, refuses to participate in any talks with both the opposition parties and the French state present. They're happy to talk to one or the other, but not both around a table. So uh, France, you know, in order to give a deadline to force the groups to get together, said, okay, we're going to act unilaterally. Mr. Macron is going to introduce a constitutional amendment. Uh, He's initiated the process already if the groups can't talk before July. So the timing of this this terrible, it's so sad for me to to talk to you about a demonstration which degenerated into violence in New Caledonia after so many years of peace. I think it's extremely disturbing uh, and it occurred, of course, when the Minister for the Interior from France was visiting New Caledonia. 
Yeah, Denise, and I know we've spoken about this quite a few times. This isn't really the first rodeo for pro-independence protesters like the UC. Uh, specifically, do you know what they are really calling for? And I know you've alluded to it a little bit, but because in terms for the Kanak, will this really deprive them of their rights? Um, well, what it, 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 they say this is a fundamental weakening of an agreement under the for the last 30 years, which has underpinned peace for the last 30 years. And there is a difference about how um, to look for the future, the, the institutional future of New Caledonia beyond the Namir Accord now, they say demands uh, a long-standing definition of who should be able to vote. There are different views amongst the independence parties and between the independence parties and the loyalist parties about how many years, for example, you might have to have been living in New Caledonia to be deemed to be eligible to vote in local elections. That's what they need to talk about. So uh, the the Kanak leaders feel they've been um, not being listened to and not being respected in this process. Uh, they did express regret. They have been called before the courts. Our people were arrested after five police were injured. You know, there was tear gas thrown and there was all kinds of things going on. It was terrible to see these scenes in New Caledonia again. But they did express regret. They said they felt they'd been kind of ambushed by police. They were directed into a certain street where trucks were and then they felt they said they felt cornered. Um, but they have expressed regret and three days later they did demonstrate again and it was a peaceful process of a demonstration. So um, it's it's really to make the point that they want to be listened to on this issue. Now, and, and as you said, there was the uh, there was three government ministers that came through to New Caledonia. One of them was yeah. uh, French Home Affairs and Overseas Minister Gerald Damanin, uh, and he's made several visits to New Caledonia, you know, to try and bring all parties together to agree on these changes. But he's actually failed every time. Why so? Well, he's failed because um, he insists on going ahead with the meetings when he schedules them, whoever turns up. And um, the Union Caledonian has been one of the consistent elements of the FLNK's independence coalition who have said, no, we're not going to sit around a table with both France and the loyalist groups. We're happy to negotiate with France. We will talk and they have been. It's not all bad. The last couple of months they have been talking, as have many of the independence groups with many of the loyalist groups in private uh, meetings. They have been a couple of sets of meetings where they've been talking, identifying areas of difference, areas where they can agree. But that's been very private and it's only been with certain loyalist parties. It hasn't been with the loyalist parties and the French state. What they're calling for is a new independence vote. They say that the third one was not valid. They want another independence vote and they want to be assured in the broader context that that they are moving, whatever comes out of the processes in the next couple of years, they want to be moving to full sovereignty. They want to be certain of that. They want um, to make sure that any concession on length of time to be able to vote in these elections, the local elections, should be contingent on a broader global agreement about the future governments of New New Caledonia. So they have been talking privately. Uh, France is trying to impose a July deadline and they have also moved as well as having a constitutional amendment to force this change through if, if the parties don't meet before July and come up with some sort of indication they're moving towards a, an agreement. Uh, but they've also decided to defer, they're passing legislation to defer the local elections, which were supposed to be held in May, 
as as long as at the end of next year. And of course, this is a red rag to to a ball to the to the Kanak leaders who are already saying that well they called a boycott. Uh, two years ago, of the independence referendum, because France declined to postpone that referendum. Uh, it was right at the height of the pandemic. There were deaths in Kanak communities. They felt that with all the um, pressure of grieving rights and so on that their culture requires, it wasn't the time to hold such a critical final referendum on independence. And France persisted in holding it on that date. And yet here we have, just two years later, the French state saying, we're going to postpone the local elections till the end of next year, so, uh, potentially. So they feel that, that they've used the word bulldozer, that France is trying to bulldoze them into a solution, into comp- compromises. Um, but I think we should focus on some of the positives and we should remember that at least they are talking in private discussions with uh, the parties across the board. There are the, there are signs that they are starting to talk to one another, which it's not all bad. Mm. But Mr. Dumbarton's visit itself, uh, even this time, he had postponed his visit three times since December, knowing uh, all because he knew that they could would not go around the table. This time he finally came. He's, he framed it in terms of a more technical visit. You know, he's also as Interior Minister for France, he's responsible for security, for police, for all kinds of um, you know, road safety and things like that. So he framed his visit. He brought the justice minister with him in the context of security. But of course, that had its own downside uh, because on the one hand, he was focusing on uh, new new detention centres, new jails, uh, the state-of-the-art jails and detention centres and so on. Well, for the loyalists, that was reassuring because a lot of the Euro- loyalists are Europeans. They feel a bit threatened by what's been happening in the last couple of years. They feel insecure. This is reassuring them that France is in control of the security situation. But the flip side of that is that Kanak leaders are well aware that prisons are full of young Kanak offenders uh, so there was kind of this feeling also that this is France muscling itself, makes its presence felt uh, in that sense as well. Uh, another aspect to the visit, despite Mr. Damana saying this was not a political visit, this was not focused on the future, this was uh, future governance, this was a more technical visit. But at the same time, he did announce a huge loan to a huge French subsidies to uh, one of the nickel plants in the south. Now, uh, of the two, the two most critical issues to the Canucks are this voter eligibility issue, but also how the revenue from nickel, the major resource of New Caledonia, is distributed. Uh, and uh, Mr. Dermanin was supposed to sign an agreement on nickel and the future of nickel uh, when he was here uh, in New Caledonia, uh, but that's had to be postponed. Why? Because of the state of the, the nickel market, the global nickel market, Indonesian competition obviously is making it hard for New Caledonia's uh, plants to produce. And France has been offering extremely generous uh, subsidies, not just to the southern plant, which is in the European area of New Caledonia, uh, but also to the northern, the Kanak Run plant. Uh, unfortunately, in the last week or so, the Kanak Run plant, um, one of one of its um, investors has decided to uh, sell its share, uh, but they declined the French government offer uh, and instead have decided to freeze production at the plant and instead look for another investor. So all of these complexities have all come together. So, you know, Mr. Dermanin's visit, which was supposed to be a very technical one, actually has become quite a political one. Um, not easy situation over there.
Yeah, not at all. Definitely a lot of complexities, as you said. can understand the frustration even for the Canuck community. Uh, if you've just tuned in, we're speaking to former Australian Consul General and new Mayor Denise Fisher uh, on the recent protests there in New Caledonia and how this really is affecting the political landscape there. Uh, Denise, obviously with the Union Caledonian, uh, or UC, I know we said that they were reluctant to take part in these talks. I mean, what then really is a possible solution for all parties? I think everybody knows that they have to get around the table and they have to talk. And for the moment, as I've said, in the last few months, they've been starting to do that in a private way. But what happened then, there was another dramatic announcement about a month ago, one of the loyalist parties that had convened private meetings with the Union Caledonian and other uh, independence groups, all of a sudden decided to publicise what what agreement they'd come to up till that point. And, of course, that was also seen by the Union Caledonian as, as a red rag. You know, you know why are you publicising this? These are private. We're just having initial preliminary talks. We don't want to commit ourselves to anything just yet. So, you know, it's a whole constant process of two steps forward, one step back. And I think we have to be very, very patient and they have to be patient too because it's been 30 years of compromises that are coming to an end now. It is mm. going to take time. But I, And also perhaps uh, the French government needs to be a bit more patient too. It's not going to be something that's going to be resolved overnight and perhaps it's, it's tactics of, of setting arbitrary deadlines may not be uh, the best way in which to, to proceed. And, you know, I think it's really becoming an issue for Australia because Mr. Daman left Namir on Friday and came to Australia for a couple of days of official meetings. Um, it's a bit unusual for an interior minister to come to Australia. You'd think from a European country, you'd think maybe the foreign minister or the trade minister. Uh, we do have a lot of police cooperation with, with France, and it's a good thing that we could talk about these things. But a comment he made just before he left is, you know, uh, we're going to talk, go to Australia now, and Australia's been watching developments in New Caledonia very closely. So there's this kind of vague... Uh, disquiet that maybe uh, the French are trying to hook Australia in in support of what they are doing in New Caledonia yeah, do you for think, uh, Australia's part. Yeah. Yeah. Apologies, Denise. Do you think this is a possible security deal? I mean, considering this whole geopolitical pull from the likes of China into the Pacific, what are your thoughts on that? Well, of course, it's in the context, uh, too, of Indo-Pacific cooperation. In that context, it's probably good that Mr. Dalmana is coming to Australia to talk about things we work together on, like you know, drug, international drug rings, international child pornography. There's a lot of work on that cooperation, on that money laundering, and so on. Even even road safety, we exchange techniques on how to control, you know, try to improve road safety. All sorts of technical things that we can talk about. But there is this disquieting feeling that coming on the heels of what he's been what he was involved in in New Caledonia has this kind of feel of you know is Australia putting an imprimatur of a stamp of approval on 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 what France is doing there the official position of Australia the Australian government has been one of silence since the third uh, referendum there's been no public comment on New Caledonia Ms Wong went there and um, went to New Caledonia and talked about relationship with New Caledonia relationship with France um, but as a member of the Pacific Island Forum, you know that Forum has been very closely watching what's been happening in New Caledonia, made a very a report to the Forum Summit last year, which was quite um, pointed about the third vote and how France had managed it. Um, there is some disquiet and some discomfort about 
how things are working out in New Caledonia. And maybe it's time for Australia to to make some sort of public comment or to at least urge more dialogue, more constructive dialogue, more efforts, exhort efforts to dialogue so that um, this close neighbour off off the coast of Brisbane, so that we can have a bit more certainty, a bit more sureness about where it's going to go in the future. This would be consistent too with Foreign Minister Wong's statement when she first came into her position. She talked about putting Indigenous issues at the heart of Australia's foreign policy. Um, uh, Maybe it's time for us to say something about, about how we'd like to seek constructive dialogue for all parties Mm. to get together and talk about the future. Absolutely, and we will keep our eyes uh, and ears on this, whether or not Australia does make comment about what's been happening there in New Caledonia. But Denise, we thank you for your time. Merci uh, for keeping us up to date with the political landscape there in New Caledonia. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Agnes. Thank you. Bye. No, No worries. That, of course, is former Australian Consul General Numia Denise Fisher. Do you sometimes want what your neighbour has? While envy may not help in some circumstances, it can prove quite useful when it comes to conservation efforts. According to a study in Fiji, Indigenous-led marine conservation in one area may have motivated nearby neighbours to set up similar projects, and according to the researchers, that is a win for the environment. Dubravka Volodya spoke to Dr Arundhati Jagadish, who did research in Fiji through Conservation International while she was a scientist at the organisation. What we found was there were so many clusters where adoptions were happening much closer in space and time. So we started looking at whether neighbours played a role. So we charted this graph to understand whether uh, adopter of an LMMA had a previous had a previous adopter who was a neighbour. And we found uh, that over 70% of our adopters had neighbours who were previous adopters, which is really interesting. And I think kind of intuitive in a lot of ways because we learn so much from our neighbors of our peer network. And so we started we started with that investigation to see whether neighborhoods had effects. Um, and then we tried to explain what the reasons were. What we didn't do in the study, and we hope, you know, this encourages others to take this on, um, is to see whether we can establish that these neighborhood effects had an inf- direct influence on adoption. And so understanding the network effects and seeing whether neighbors were speaking to other neighbors and this is what drove the process. So we haven't established the causality for neighbor-to-neighbor adoption, but we know there is a relationship. You said you looked at the possible reasons. What were the reasons? So the factors that we found significant were, one, that people you know, saw some benefits to adopting. So there's this idea that villages were perceiving some benefit of being part of the network. The chiefly status, which we also learned was one of the strategies in which the network uh, works. So, you know, Fiji has a a very uh, traditional hierarchical system. And so if you first approach the chiefly village, um, it makes it easy for you to reach other villages in the same uh, manua. We also found that distance to tourism hotspots played a role. Um, Again, villages that were further away from tourist um, hotspots were more likely to be LMMA adopters. And then, uh, you know, some of them also had these Yambula committees, which are resource management committees. And if they had them at the district level, they were they were more likely to be adopters. Presence of NGOs uh, played a big role. So if you worked with an NGO before um, 
and you know the NGO was working in the area, they would help you set up this LMMA. So that was a significant factor. Uh, and one of the most um, uh, you know commonly studied is this idea of trust. So if the villagers trusted um, where they got their information from and generally had a trust in like government bodies and nonprofits, um, they were more likely to be adopters. If we talk about indigenous-led conservation, what sort of areas are we talking about? And how does it differ uh, from more traditional conservation? Traditional conservation can also be in of many different forms, right? Historically, conservation was seen as a very um, a preservationist concept. So there were protected areas, um, there were areas that were considered, um, you know, wilderness areas, so there were no humans in them. Um, but there are also other um, more open conservation areas where communities are managing resources, um, you know, either with support from or sometimes by themselves um, uh, through other like organizations. Um, and those are mostly like community-based resource management areas that are um, uh, indigenous-led you know, take on a different significance because there's a lot of, you know, questions of stewardship and access and rights uh, over resources. Historically, they have been marginalized away from these spaces. Um, and so areas where indigenous um, people and local communities have uh, control of, uh, you know, rights to access, rights to harvest uh, resources, um, those would classify as indigenous uh, areas or, or indigenous-led resource management areas. And so while there is merit in, you know, recognition of these systems that also play a big role in biodiversity conservation, and now uh, people are studying, you know, how they help mitigate climate change um, from an environmental justice perspective um, by themselves, uh, you know, there is merit in looking into these systems. So we were only looking at locally managed marine areas. Um, and the Pacific has a long history of customary marine resource management, you know, over hundreds of years. Um, over time, they have uh, degraded uh, through, you know, colonization and, and and things like that. So there's this idea that recognition um and stewardship and access and rights, um, how do you formalize them? And so the locally managed marine areas concept was basically understanding this kind of uh, plural governance that emerges in these systems. So, you know, they are indigenous led, but also supported uh, in many different ways through support organizations um, that we studied uh, in this uh, paper, but also um, as they operate, there are, you know, government regulations on fisheries that kind of apply to them. So they work in this kind of rural space, um, which makes it really interesting. And now, for you know, some of our listeners might hear what we are talking about and might be interested mm -hmm. perhaps as well in taking up their own conservation, their own marine conservation effort. What sort of advice would you have for them? How can they get started? I think learning from others, your um, neighbours, your friends, you know, there's, yeah, this kind of social learning, I think is extremely important and would be valuable uh, for anyone looking at these kinds, kinds of systems. And that's Dr. Arundhati Jagadish talking to Dubrovka Volodia. Up next, it's News Wrap with producer Mackenzie Smith. News and 40. Hosted by me, Sam Wikes. And me, Tenerao Aruna. Each week, we'll bring you Pacific Islander stories from on and off the rugby league and rugby union field. We'll have plenty of special guests, tales from the past, tackle the big topics of today and look forward to the next-gen Nisian footy stars. Nisian footy. 
Nation Footy. Monday afternoons at 4 o'clock PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. Welcome back to Pacific Beat. It is that time where we head around the region, see what the headlines are. And of course, that is brought to us uh, by our producer, Mackenzie Smith. With that, I say good morning. How are you doing? Morning, Aggie. Good to be here. Thank you very much. Uh, Let's get straight into it. Chinese police, gosh, they're working unannounced in Kiribati. How has that happened? Yeah, so Reuters reports that uniformed Chinese police officers have been involved in community policing and working on a crime database program in Kiribati. That's despite there being no publicly announced uh, security arrangement between the two countries. Kiribati officials reportedly told Reuters up to a dozen Chinese officers arrived last year for a six-month rotation and that was following a request from the Kiribati government. The officers are also assisting with a martial arts program for local police. And all of this, of course, comes amid intense scrutiny on China's presence in the region following a security deal inked with Solomon Islands last year. Uh, as we head to Fiji, though, this is interesting, record numbers of people are migrating overseas. Uh, Yeah, ANZ Bank has released figures showing more than 25,000 Fijians migrated overseas in the year ending 2023, uh, the highest since records began in 2005. So that figure is equivalent to about 3% of Fiji's population. And the Fiji Times reports the report... uh, the report's authors saying it reflects record numbers of Fijians leaving for study and work in Australia and New Zealand. But they also expect this to ease from next year as demand declines in those receiving countries. The authors say a predicted population increase in, 25, in 2025 will also support economic activity in Fiji and grow the domestic labour force. Uh, we head to Balal though. Tommy's, uh, sorry, Tommy, <laughs> Tommy Rimengesal Jr. has announced uh, he's again running for president. Yeah, he'll be facing off against the incumbent Surangal Whips Jr. in the election, which is currently slated for November the 12th. Rimengesal uh, was president from 2001 until 2021 over two consecutive terms, uh, but he, he lost in that election to Whips Jr. In a statement, Romain Casale says Palau needs a government that will foster sustainable growth and development in line with its culture. He didn't name Palau's marine sanctuary uh, there, but he's recently been critical of uh, Whips's government and its decision to reopen parts of that sanctuary to commercial fishing and what uh, Whips says is a necessary measure for economic recovery in Palau. Romengasau uh, signed the sanctuary into law in 2015, so it is a bit personal for him. Mm, yeah, definitely. Well, look, uh, Mackenzie, we thank you very much for bringing our news wrap this morning. Thanks so much. 
When you think of the Pacific, you might think of lush, tropical trees, green grass and beautiful waterfalls. And the region is often associated with high rainfall and abundant natural resources. But did you know that collectively, Pacific Islands have the world's lowest rates of access to safe or basic drinking water and sanitation? It's an issue that Dr Regina Suter from Griffith University is trying to help address, as she tells Marion Farr. Many parts of the world have a range of challenges in delivering water services to all of their populations. Some of those that are particularly exacerbated in the Pacific are things like many small communities that are dispersed very wide geographically and a very large rural population. So the capacity for governments or the private sector to provide those services to people who are living in rural areas is really quite challenging. What lengths are some people in the Pacific going to to get safe, clean drinking water? Are you able to give some examples? As we know is common to many parts of the world, often the responsibility to provide water on a day-to-day basis comes down to the women in households uh, and in communities and they will often need to walk great distances, many kilometres, certainly hundreds of metres, and then carrying water back to the household to meet their daily domestic needs. Obviously, it's quite difficult to do that and carry large volumes. So what happens is smaller volumes of water get taken back to the house, um, which means there's less available for um, some of the activities that might seem a lower priority on a, on a day-to-day basis. So, for example, if there's not a lot of water, then it's quite difficult to maintain safe hygiene practices. The Pacific is known as being, you know, a very tropical region in most places with high levels of rainfall. Do you find many people are surprised to hear that um, getting access to safe and clean water is such a challenge? Yeah, that's very true. A lot of the people that I speak with who who don't work with me but ask me about my work are often surprised that the Pacific has any kind of resource challenges because they have this image of this paradise with a bountiful of, of all kinds of resources that are needed. But there are certainly many situations in Pacific Island countries where there isn't lots of rainfall or there isn't a lot of um, locally stored rainfall, for example, some of the coral atolls. Your research looks into how countries can plan to ensure that they do have access to safe and clean water. How might these plans differ depending on where in the Pacific you live? Why is it so important to kind of take local context into example? Yeah, look, that's a great question. Communities are largely left to their own um, capacities to manage water systems. Maybe they've had support to um, install some infrastructure and perhaps had some training in operating and maintaining that infrastructure. But over time, they're largely left to their own devices to govern and manage uh, and troubleshoot and repair those systems. So the local context becomes very important when communities are managing these systems on their own. It's it's This is not just a challenge in the water resources being available to feed into the system. It's also a challenge of a, you know, a small piped system being maintained and looked after 
every day, as well as the governance challenges that communities need to be able to perform. For example, making decisions about when to limit water distribution because the, the storage tank's becoming low, for example, and how to make that decision and who to involve in that decision-making. Perhaps it's worth mentioning that the shift in other parts of the world is to professionalise rural water services. So to get to a situation where there are paid community members or paid outside service providers who are maintaining these water systems and services. But I think we are a fair way off that model being a reality in the Pacific. And one of the strategies we've been piloting is incorporating social marketing types of approaches into the communication with broader community members, in particular, finding stories of success. So finding examples of communities or people people in other communities who can can share their story about what they're doing positively for their water system and why they do it. And that's Dr. Regina Suta from Griffith University speaking with Marion Farr. Now, when Solomon Islands signed a secret security pact with China in 2022, there was a leaked draft of the treaty made international headlines. But one element largely missing from the media coverage was the impact of the treaty on women. So joining me this morning is Solomon Islands researcher uh, Patricia Sango-Pollard to talk about her research work, which looks at how security arrangements, not just China's, but Australia's bilateral treaty too, affects the lives of women. With that, I say good fellow morning, Patricia. Hello, morning from Solomon Islands. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us. Hey, uh, before we get into the findings of your research, what, why did you feel uh, this was such an important topic to, to study? Um, in the Solomons, the security agreement is like a growing, it's a new and emerging area, and I was just curious about how that will affect um, uh, women, peace and security since women has been um, participating in um, peace and peace and conflict resolution efforts back during our, over our troubled time. So I just want to see how it plays out when we have um, security agreements with other countries. Mm. Because when it comes to peace in Solomon Islands, what, what role do women play? So women, women in their own homes, they are already peacemakers helping with um, peace resolutions in their household. But coming out, for example, in the ethnic tensions, women has been part of um, um, diffusing tensions, going to meet the military people and talking to them and getting them to connect and to bring about peace. So, And they have been doing that all along. Women's groups, women's network in the Solomon's, Solomon Islands have always been um, standing up when we have conflicts. They, they talk about it. In, in the media, they um, advocate for it to the government and, yeah, they talk to people in their communities. So women has been has always been at the forefront of um, peace resolutions in the country. Mm, love that. Love hearing that. Uh, Patricia, let's go through some of the research findings, though, looking at China's security treaty uh, with Solomon Islands and even also Australia's bilateral treaty. Can you share what the impact on women have been or are from the those two security agreements? Uh, the impacts are both direct and indirect. So direct would be um, at the instant, like when we have security agreements and we have assistance arriving when we in our travel times, it really helps women because women in the Solomon Islands are 
like lots of women are in, in the informal market. So they're sitting out there doing their markets, taking their kids to school and, you know, doing the things around their home. So when we have troubles and we have the security assistant arrived and, you know, it diffuses the tension and everything, women feel safe again. So that's, that's like a direct, like direct positive impact of the security agreements that we have with other countries. But as you talk with women, like when you dig, dig further, you can see that these are uh, the security agreements is like a band aid for uh, lots of things that should be fixed in our country. So women are still having trouble going to access markets. The health system is broken and our women, like women in the Solomon Islands are dying from cervical cancer, breast cancer on a very high rate. And, and um, you know, unemployment, mass migration to urban areas, like those are the lots of things that when you talk to women, they think that these security agreements is like a band-aid for all the problems that always explodes every now and then when we didn't fix the underlying cost, underlying causes of the troubles we have in the country. Yeah, I want to get into that later on. But I first want to ask, though, so with before the Solomon Islands government even signed that security pact with China uh, and even the Australia bilateral one, uh, was there any consultation with the community uh, of, of women? And have they said how they have felt about this? Um, that's where our China and Solomon Islands is the same because they didn't really consult with, um, like China didn't consult with um, anyone knowing, I mean, they've, maybe they've consulted with the government, but not with the civil society or women's group. So to see how it will pan out, because we already have the a Women's Peace and Security National Action Plan that uh, Australia has helped the Ministry of Women to um to like set up to develop, so we had that in 2017 when Australia had its uh, bilateral treaty, security treaty with the Solomon Islands, and also we have a national security strategy 2020. But all these security agreements are not connecting to those frameworks, and there hasn't been much consultation that we know of. When I speak to the women in like who are out there working in the women's ministries and women's networks, there's no consultation in any either of these security agreements. Thank you for that, Patricia. Uh, look, on the line with me from Oniara is Solomon Islands researcher Patricia Sango-Pollard. Uh, we're talking about gender and peace. Now, Patricia, again, the government's main reasons for signing that security pact with China was because uh, the Prime Minister was not satisfied with the level of security provided uh, by the Royal Solomon Islands Police Force. And, of course, this followed the 2021 riots. Do you think then it does uh, justify the security treaty with China, though? Mm, like for me personally, other people might have their thoughts. Uh, I don't think any security agreement with any other country is needed because we don't have any external threats. We just have to fix our own um, problems that you know can be fixed with sound policy and um, implementation. Yeah, and any security. But for now, with the level we at now, I think we need it now. But we shouldn't need it in the long run because we need to work on the issues that we have as a country. Yeah. Um, China and Australia, of course, they seem to be competing, right, to equip the police force there. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah but, that's right. but do guns and, oh, I mean, even bigger guns mean a safer Solomon Islands, especially for women? I don't think so, because we have this, um, we have, when you talk to women, they always refer back to the experiences in our ethnic tension from 98 to 2023, when we have the guns, the police with the guns terrorizing women. 
in villages, those are state owned um, with, I mean, guns. So with the security agreement with China, like we don't know if it's, you know, in reaction to that, Australia gave the Solomon police some guns. And so that that raises eyebrows with the woman like, okay, you just take away the guns after the tensions. Now you bring back the guns again. And, and is there any, I mean, strong policies around that, how the use of the guns, are you going to tell us the public how you're going to use it? So yeah, those are the questions around questions and fears around guns coming back to the country. And I know you spoke about, you know, the, the, uh, the basic services that are being overlooked, of course, uh, including services for women. Uh, what again, if you, and I know you t- spoke about it a little bit, but can you maybe expand on what the services women are, well, what the government should be looking into rather than focusing on this whole security? Yeah, so uh, in the Solomons, we have like the larger part of the population, um, they live off um, subsistence agriculture and uh, informal markets. So, like, uh, a thing, you know, a service that would that would help people to meet their basic needs is having proper infrastructure, having access to markets. Like if people have access to employment and access to markets, they are able to look after themselves. Instead of, you know, being unemployed, you have like the troubles in Honiara because lots of young youths, they are. They're just, they are waiting for, you know, something to join. And they're just opportunists taking on. They If you ask them during the crisis, when they are doing the rioting, wh- what are you really angry about? They wouldn't, they don't say, they don't know what to say. They're just opportunists who, you know, it shows that we have people who are just around not doing much and, yeah, and in we, trouble. Yeah, and when we talk about infrastructure, like you say, access to the markets, are you also looking for better pay for women too? Better pay for women, yeah, yeah. I'm looking at better pay for women too. Women, I mean, at the moment in our country, uh, like the majority of women are unemployed and are in the informal markets, and the like, just a smaller percentage of women. Oh, but most of the country, like almost eighty percent of the country, are in the informal markets. So, I mean, I uh, I don't we can't really talk about pay at the moment because mm-hmm. most of the women are not employed formally. Right. Well, Patricia, Solomon Islands, again, they're heading to the polls in mid-April. Would like to know, what are your hopes when it does come to security? I mean, what would you like the next government to do? When it comes to security for us women in the Solomon Islands, it's just, you know, food security, all these things to put, you know, make life keeps going. And like with, with the security agreements we have now, like our current, we don't have any external threats, but we have, we are living in our homes and we are fearing, you know, thieves might break in. Rob. I mean, all these opportunities that are out there. So my hopes, my hopes for the next government is that when they come in, they will fix the issues that helps the Solomon Islanders to be able to look after themselves. Absolutely. And Patricia, look, we just want to say thank you this morning uh, for giving us a little bit of insight into this. uh, And thank you again for your research. Thank you very much. No worries. That is Patricia Sango-Ponlad, Solomon Islands researcher here on Pacific Beat.
And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Let's take a look back at one of our main stories today. French government plan changes to New Caledonia's electoral roll have sparked protests in the capital, New Mayor. Former Australian Consul General Denise Fisher says the pro-independence protesters are resolute. They want to be moving to full sovereignty. They want to be certain of that. They want um, to make sure that any concession on length of time to be able to vote in these elections, the local elections, should be contingent on a broader global agreement about the future governments of New South of New Caledonia. Head to our website for more stories, abc.net.au forward slash Pacific. Uh, you can hear us again this afternoon at 5pm at PNG time, but I'll be back same time tomorrow, 6am PNG time. Stay tuned to ABC Radio Australia, though, because news is next. And coming up after that, it's Nisha Daily. Until next time, Otua Afatu, I'm Aggie Dubal, and you've been tuning into Pacific Beat.